0: Hello, everyone. My name is Reese Lindmark, and you are listening to The Reese Show. On the show, we're trying to clarify what a good future looks like. I know we're all a bit sad about late stage capitalism and we want to transition to something, but we don't really know what's next. So on the show, we interview experts about what is emerging, this beautiful future vision that we can all lean into. I hope it gives you a sense of purpose and clarity about the future. If you like the show, you know, feel free to do something about it. (laughs) You can leave us a five-star review. You can tell your friends. You can name your first child Reese. Whatever makes you happy. And if you really dig it, we have an online school called Root, where we help folks understand these root-level systems to find our root forward. We have cohorts of world-class systems thinkers that run every couple of months. So if you're interested in that, check us out at root.co. That's R-O-O-T-E dot co. Thanks. Today, I interview Rebecca Henderson, Rebecca is a professor at Harvard Business School and recently wrote a book called Reimagining Capitalism. And we have a pretty interesting conversation. We talk a lot about how companies can make money from actually doing good, and we dive into a lot of the juicy difficulties around that with metrics versus signaling, and I, just, I really appreciated Rebecca's knowledgeable perspective on how these new age metrics will work. So I do a longer reflection at the end of the show, but before that, let's dive right into the interview. Enjoy it. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with economist and Harvard professor Rebecca Henderson. Rebecca just wrote a book called Reimagining Capitalism, which is about, well, as you had guessed, (laughs) reimagining capitalism for the 21st century. Uh, Rebecca, thanks for being on the show and welcome.
1: Uh, Reese, thank you for having me here. I'm uh, delighted to be on the show.
0: Yeah, excited to chat. Uh, And so I think that let's just dive directly in and chat about the book. And so, as, you know, listeners on the show know, we chat a lot about some of the sadnesses of today's society, you know, the environment, inequality and crumbling institutions. And do you think that companies can kind of help that and help this reimagining of capitalism. In your book, you talk about these five pillars of reimagining capitalism. Could you kind of go through those for our listeners?
1: Sure. The, uh, the first is to realize that the point of business is not to maximize shareholder value and never was maximizing shareholder value was always me- a means to an end. The end was creating a prosperous and free society. And the first step is the realization that in today's world, simply putting your head down and maximizing profits is not creating a, a prosperous and free society. That um, when we have these massive unpriced externalities like climate change, when there is not genuine freedom of opportunity and accelerating inequality is trapping many people in poverty, and when our institutions are crumbling and cannot enforce fair rules of the game on the market, that the market is neither free nor fair, and there's no guarantee it will produce either prosperity or freedom. And in those circumstances, I argue that business needs to embrace the fact that it has a broader purpose. The purpose is to be part of a thriving and just society, and that, um, as as businesses make decisions, they need to have this higher purpose in mind. So that's the first pa- the first pillar: become a purpose driven business. Mm. The second is find opportunities to create shared value, because. Um, I've uh, been teaching at a business school for more than 30 years. I have 25 years cumulative experience being on corporate boards. I understand that firms need to, to make profits and that they need to be profitable to survive. So the second pillar is all about finding those places where it is possible to address some of the enormous problems we face and make money. And um, I call that creating shared value in the book after the phrase my colleague Michael Porter invented, but we could call it do good and do well or whatever whatever you prefer. The good news is the fact that our society is changing so quickly is beginning to generate billion-dollar opportunities to do this at scale. We're seeing increasing pressure from consumers and employees to, uh, to do the right thing. We're seeing the technology shift in a way that opens up um, opportunities to completely transform industries. It's no coincidence that... Uh, Tesla's now the world's most valuable automotive company. The whole automotive uh, industry is shifting. The power industry is shifting. Food is shifting. Construction, agriculture, major shifts as we begin to wake up to the reality that we need to do things differently. And so for me, creating shared value is looking for those opportunities at the leading edge and moving into them, being part of the economy that I think God, I'm going to use the phrase, is struggling to be born, but uh, <laughs> but I do think that's right. Um, so, create shared value. Make sure that making a difference in the world is at the heart of your business model. Then the, the third follows the realization that, oh, my goodness, I mean, I might be able to do something as a firm, you know, even a firm as big as Walmart, which... Uh, has a massive investment in addressing climate change, all of it money-making, and is committed to paying more to its people, all for good reasons, because that improves productivity and customer service. Even a firm as large as Walmart, if they genuinely embrace purpose, is not going to change the world. Clearly, no single firm can do that. And I at least believe that the answer to our problems is not a bunch of firms running around doing good Although I think that's important and can make a big difference, I think. Um, and we can talk more wh- about why I think those leading edge firms are so important. But, but most firms who go down that route realize that, whoa, if I'm going to be able to solve these problems, I need to do more. And I need to cooperate with other firms like me. So the third panel is, or the third pillar is all about voluntary self-regulation. So I need to stop deforestation in my supply chain. Consumers hate it. It's putting the viability of the whole industry at, at risk. My brand is under threat. I need to buy deforestation-free beef or soy or palm oil, but I can't afford to do that alone because if my competitors don't make the same choice, they will have significantly lower costs than I do. Can I persuade every one else in my industry to do the same thing? Can we agree that all of us will take the high road so none of us will be at a disadvantage? And that's super interesting and exciting as a means to attack this problem. We can talk later perhaps about the fact that it's global, that um, self-regulation means that firms can put in place the kinds of metrics and milestones that are really appropriate to the business. So in some ways, it's really exciting. The only problem is that it, too, is not enough to get us where we need to go. I mean, four years ago, I thought voluntary self-regulation would be the answer to Problems like climate change and deforestation, and, and now it's clear it's not, and uh, and clearly never was in the case of problems like inequality. So the, the problem is you can pull all these firms together, and they can say the right things, and we can get very excited, but there'll always be a few firms who attempted to defect. Um, technically, we've got a massive collective collective goods problem. We say we're going to solve it. We see the business case, but you know, I have to generate the the returns for this quarter. So a lot of self regulation. It's not stable. So the question is, where do we turn for enforcers? How, where do we find the constituencies that will force business to do the right thing? Two possibilities. The first is investors. So the fourth pillar is to rewire finance. And this is clearly an enormous topic. Um I focus on two issues in particular. One is the potential role of ESG metrics in enabling firms to communicate to their investors that investing in the longer term and in these kinds of social and environmental problems can be a route to profitability. And the second is whether investors themselves can be persuaded to cooperate. I argue that the financial sector as a whole has a compelling interest, a compelling business interest in solving problems like climate change inequality and institutional degradation, and might be sufficiently concentrated that it might actually act on that compelling interest, uh, which is... And I can never make up my mind whether that's a great idea or just really, really creepy. Um, mm. Because the idea that, you know, 12 investors own basically all the financial assets or a huge fraction of financial assets is that good news or bad news? I'm not sure. Um, so, finance, I, in my good moments, I think finance will take us a long way. I think that it might really move the needle on climate change. Uh, whether it will address inequality and institutional degradation, uh, much less sure. So where's the other place we can turn? Well, the other place we can turn is government. Why don't we have a democratically elected, transparent, accountable, capable government that can frame the rules of the game such that business doesn't have to worry about doing good? There are regulations in place to uh, manage climate emissions. We could... You know, one of the frustrating things about doing what I do is if we would put in place sensible climate regulation 15 years ago, a low price for carbon and gradually escalated it over time we would be close to done. I mean, it's just so heartbreaking that uh, sensible policy could make so much difference in this space. But government is also, of course, uh, incredibly important if we're going to address issues like inequality of opportunity and improvements in uh, education and healthcare that will let everyone compete uh, on a level playing field. So the, the last pillar is all about business rediscovering democracy, uh, lobbying to get money out of politics, um, acknowledging that a healthy society rests on three foundations: free market, free politics, strong civil society. Um, all the evidence we have suggests that you need all three. So, um, so that's the book. That's how business changes the world.
0: Yeah, thank you for that overview. I think, and I, I've as a person who's read the book, it is. I think that's a great overview. And I think you did a good job in this vocal processing of describing how they all connect with each other. And I'm just going to reflect that for a second for our listeners. It's A that, and I love this framing where it's like money is a means to an end and markets and companies are a means to an end. It's just like we don't really care that companies exist. We care that they help us make a free and prosperous society. So thinking about that and then making sure that that is embedded in companies as purpose, that makes a lot of sense. And then as companies start to work towards that purpose, you can think of the shared value that they're creating and thinking about, okay, instead of just like being extractive companies or what have you, instead create these beautiful Notions of shared value, where the value you're creating is actually solving customer needs instead of just like, you know, forcing them to buy more things or whatever. And then those two things are great, but you also need to have the kind of companies cooperating with each other, doing the self-regulatory organization things. And those are great when they work, but there's also some free rider issues that can happen. And so then you can kind of move up to the meta level and say, okay, how can we try to rewire E a you know, rewire finance by saying, hey, let's actually start to track, um, you know, if a company is free writing in a bad way, well, if we have an ESG metric that tracks not just profit, but also some of these triple bottom line things, then maybe uh, you can be kind of forced incentivized to do good things. And then finally, as you note here, even though this is a book about kind of how companies can do good, you also say that governments can be a great part of it as well. So I think that that I like that framing and it kind of like zooms out in levels of scale there, which I like let's i want to dive in specifically for a second on the notion of like purpose and and shared value those kind of first two pillars for a second and specifically around this idea of signaling and in your book you talk about so i think that the issue you talk about this paradox in your, in the book which i think is brilliant which is to say it is an authentic, having an authentic purpose is actually a great way to make more money and so how should we think about that because then it feels inauthentic, you know, or something like greenwashing can feel inauthentic. So how do you think about signaling um, within these new worlds of like social metrics?
1: Sure. There's a lot of greenwashing out there. As employees and customers start to care more about these kinds of issues, the temptation to issue a press release, give a bunch of money to the right NGO, do something shiny that distracts attention gets quite strong. I mean, I think we saw that um, in the response to the rejuvenation of the Black Lives Matter movement. I mean, watching the awful, awful tape of the murder of George Floyd. I mean, I think all of us thought, okay, we've got to do something. But you, you could really see that some firms like had a clear sense of what they could do and were going to do it and other firms were just like call the PR department and issue a press release mm-hmm. and so you know what is authentic purpose and and I love this paradox you raised which is wait if i pursue authentic purpose because it's a better way to make money is that authentic you know that's <laughs> inauthentic so so let's let's unpack that how can you tell whether a firm is authentically purpose-driven? The signal thing to look for is whether it's expensive. Authentically purpose-driven firms routinely give up profits in the service of the purpose. So the classic, classic story is Nordstrom, a very, very purpose-driven firm. An employee at Nordstrom once accepted the return of snow tires, even though Nordstrom doesn't sell snow tires and in many organizations, that particular employee would be taken out the back and, and shot, metaphorically speaking, mm-hmm. speaking. But at Nordstrom, they were like, whoa, that's fantastic. You went the extra mile. You were really serving customers. You're amazing. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, a classic example. Another one would be, um, Mark Bertolini, who was the CEO of Aetna, a health insurance company. He learned that uh, about 10% of his workforce was, was making, um, only minimum wage and was having, and he learned this by accident, which is wild, was was uh, was really having a hard time making ends meet, that many of his employees were working two jobs, that their kids were on food stamps. And he he came back from that experience. He said, We're raising the wages. I, I don't care. We're taking them up to $18, $20 an hour, we're giving them a living wage. And he had a huge fight with the people in his organization who said, well, no, we're paying the prevailing wage. We leave money on the table if we pay more than we need to. He said, I do not care. You will pay the prevailing wage. You you will pay a living wage. And, And that's authenticity to me. Now, this question about, well, does it make you money? Genuine authenticity, and we know this now from hundreds of careful study in psychology and behavioral economics and so on, Genuine having a genuinely authentic purpose puts in place a number of mechanisms that make the firm significantly more creative, more innovative, and more productive. We know from recent research th- um, actually, we've known this for 20 years that in every industry, the best managed firms are more than twice as productive as the least. And that's after you control for the quality of the capital and the education that your employees have. I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms trying to make this result go away because economists hated it so much. Mm-hmm. But no, it, it's really there. And it turns out that some firms are much better managed. And what do they have? They have very strong levels of trust very strong levels of communication, um, people focus on the good of the organization rather than on themselves. And people who have a sense of meaning, who believe that their work is intrinsically worthwhile, are going to work, and we know this, significantly harder than those who are working for a paycheck. People who believe that they, their co-workers share common values and are united in pursuit of a common goal, you're going to see much higher levels of trust and much higher levels of commitment. And so, you, what you see when you're authentically purpose-driven is a cascade of mutually reinforcing effects that make the firm more productive, creative, and more innovative. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it more profitable. Mm -hmm. And indeed, the literature on this is super mixed. We know that in general, firms with high ESG performance, for example, don't perform less well than firms with low we know that firms with high purpose and a clear common widely shared sense of strategy outperform their competitors but just having a clearly understood purpose not correlated with superior performance and you'd expect that Reese because i just told you an authentic purpose is expensive so the way to think about this is is to a first approximation there are two ways to run a firm take the high road purpose-driven, treat people with dignity and respect, have a pro-social purpose for the whole firm, or take the low road. Well, we know what that looks like. I don't think we can say that high road firms will consistently outperform low road. I really don't. You can make a lot of money down at the bottom. What we can say is they can survive. And I believe they're much better at finding these opportunities to do the right thing. They're at the leading edge of the kind of industry transformation we need to build a more sustainable society. So I think purpose firms are super important. And and I don't think there's a contradiction. You know, the fact that I need money to survive, I have a great friend who used to say, we all need to breathe to live. But the point of Living is not breathing. And for a purpose-driven firm, you need to make the money, but it's not the point. And everyone can see that. And they they consistently act in ways that make it very clear that the purpose is the point and making money is the means.
0: Yeah, so I think that makes a good amount of sense to me, which is that if you want to see if a company is purpose-driven, then you're like, okay, it has to be expensive. You know, you can't just like talk the talk and say, like, oh, we really care about a purpose, but it's like, no, you care about it at the expense of your own bottom line to some extent. And maybe that's a short-term bottom line that like long-term if you think from a long-term perspective, it will like, you'll still be able to make those, you know, find innovative things and, you know, Find cool solutions that because of your weird kind of innovative purpose there. So I think that mostly makes sense to me. Is there a, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the kind of greenwashing side of things as well, especially for me, maybe as like a consumer. And I see some kind of chocolate bar, and all the chocolate bars are trying to signal to me these days and tell me, hey, Reese, we are good. We promise. You are <laughs> virtuous if you buy this chocolate bar. And I look at all of them, I'm like, Um, okay, like which one should I buy? And am I just paying more money for this like marketing or like what's the deal here? So how should a a, a consumer think about that?
1: Um, I think I say in the book that I used to think accounting was boring, was the plumbing, you know, that accountants were boring people. But the more I thought about these issues, the more I realized that accountants hold the key to saving the world. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, think about what an accounting, accounting is about. It's about finding measures that are useful, that are really related to performance, and that are true and audited and comparable. It took 100 years to build modern financial accounting. We take for granted that by and large, when you look at a bank state, um, when you look at the income state of a company, that really is their revenue, and those really are their assets. In the 1930s, when uh, p published their annual report, it said, you know, our our revenue is $20 million, our profits are $350,000, stockholders wishing to know more um, are welcome to apply to our headquarters in Cincinnati in person. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we take for granted in financial accounting has taken a 100 years. And what we're looking at now is a scramble to try and find measures that are true that really have an effect on the world, that can be trusted, that are audited. So, the problem with your chocolate bar, and I completely share your confusion, is you know, it's some measure by who knows what. It could be by my cousin, right? And my cousin says this chocolate is incredibly sustainable. That's why it's so important to get the measures right. You know, sometimes people say to me, Don't we just need a cultural shift or an ethical shift? And I say, That's incredibly important. Absolutely. We We need to become purpose-driven. Our whole society needs to to start thinking about the long-term and the community in a different way. But trust, but verify. We need measures that are audited, that are replicable, that people can trust. And the investors are a great place to start on that. So investors absolutely have to be pushing their firms to you tell me you're doing the right thing. Show me the measures. Where do they come from? I think consumers need to be doing the same thing. Uh, we need to find a way to settle on a few measures that are widely trusted carefully audited uh, that that really make the difference and i'm I'm hopeful Reese, that the web will help us get there that there's enough communication about what's junk and what isn't that uh, that we'll be able fairly soon to know what are the measures to trust and and which are not
0: mm-hmm yeah, I think that that would—I mean, obviously that would be my hope too. If if I looked at one chocolate bar versus another, I say, okay, if I want to be a good boy today, I'll buy this one. If I want to be a bad person, I'll be, do the cheap one or whatever. Um, that would be <laughs> lovely. It reminds me also of kind of your your thoughts on rewiring finance and how the the ESG side of things—the you know, environmental environmental sustainability and governance piece. Um, and I think that there are or actually does the S stand for stakeholders or does it stare for, what does the ESG stand for again?
1: It stands for social, environmental, social. social,
0: and government. Thank you, thank you. Okay, I was like, I, I was like, I don't think it's yeah, great. Um, so the ESG and ESG is funny because it is, I mean, it's pretty new, all things considered. And I really liked in your book how you highlighted this the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and they are the kind of what I see. And tell me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong. The like standards body for setting some of these new metrics that you're talking about. The thing that I'm worried about though is that like profits just like a simple kind of number and the um the sasb the sustainability accounting standards board they have 77 different industries with all these different metrics and so how are we gonna like it's better for us to you know expand our dimensional space from one dimension up to like n dimensions but i'm worried about like all these 77 different industries with metrics for each so how how do you Mm. see us getting to a rewiring of finance that is clear to consumers
1: so clear to consumers is tough, right? And mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to have product level standards, industry level standards for consumers. But let's focus on investors for a moment. Great. Yeah. Um, the early ESG metrics were basically junk. They have a good ESG metric has to be relevant to the performance of the company, right? Because companies have to make money. Investors want their companies to make money. So, it has to be measures of something that's really going to affect the performance of the company going going long-term. So, you know, for a university, carbon emissions, are they really relevant to how well the university performs? Not so much. Do you care about the quality of the faculty and whether they're well trained and whether they turn over? Absolutely you do. So I think we're sort of stuck with the fact that when you move beyond financial metrics, you have to look at things that really get at the nature of the business. I think that's the nature, the nature of the problem. If I'm going to say, well, what is a, Car company that's really doing the right thing and investing in the future, they aren't. And what kinds of investments should they make? That's going to look very different from, say, um, a catering company. Um, or, a, or a hospital. So it's not surprising we have different metrics for different kinds of businesses. What's exciting about SASB is they're really trying to put in the time to make sure these are the right metrics, that they're really correlated both with doing good in the world and with profits, and that they are measured properly and, and that you can trust them. So, for sure, it's not easy, but it's not rocket science, Reese. I mean, if you look at the SASB metrics for an industry, you know, there are 10 or 15 and they're reasonable. It's not such a big deal to measure them. And investors are smart. They know that what drives profitability in airlines is different from what drives profitability in, uh, in, in retail, say. And so, this is just one more piece of information to think about how, how well the firm is going to do and whether they're doing the right thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also like what you said there. It's like, to some extent, the consumer piece matters. But I think so much of what matters, especially from a rewiring finance perspective, is how is the legibility to investors. So I I really like that framing, too.
1: Absolutely. Notice that when I talked about the five pillars, I didn't actually mention consumers. Um, consumer pressure would be nice. We would all love it if the world's consumers insisted. But mostly, the pressure comes from employees, not not from consumers. You know, you make the consumption decision so quickly, unless it's a car or a house, that you're not really going to invest the necessary time to find out if this is the right chocolate bar. But for an employee, I mean, The students at HBS, at least, are investing very heavily in, is this firm for real? Are they really making a difference? Can I trust them? Employees are a much more useful source of pressure, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep. that makes sense. And we've seen that to some extent with the big tech companies as well, and like the employees exerting pressure on on, yeah, yep. on the companies as well. So I think I would like to chat for a second about this. I um, mean, you start to mention it with this trust but verify thing, and thinking about self regulatory organizations and the ability for companies to get in these situations where they actually want to do good. But um, and they're actually going to do it of their own volition. I think there's this story in my head and in many people's head that like companies are just purely profit maximizing and that they're not going to if you're trying to get, you know, child labor out of their supply chain, they're just not going to do it. So tell me about what makes you optimistic about this cooperation piece.
1: It starts with shared value. So take a firm like Nike they get completely attacked because they're using child labor in their supply chain and they decide to fix it. Not because they're good people. I mean, maybe they're good people, but the reason they want to fix it is because every Nike, ta- Nike store in the country is being besieged by screaming people. They're in the press all the time. Employees are saying, what, we work for an evil corporation? I mean, they have a very clear business model as to why they want to get child labor out of the supply chain. And so they try And they discover it's really, really hard. It turns out that textile and footwear supply chains are incredibly complicated, that the big companies serve many, many firms, that they subcontract. So you go to your supplier and say, I want you to take child labor out of the chain. and, And they go, yeah, sure, boss. But actually doing it, super hard. So Nike tries for a while and decides it just can't be done. And then they think, okay, every other firm in this business with a strong brand has the same problem we do. They have to protect their brand. They have to make sure that their supply chain it doesn't have child labor. So they start going to every other big Western apparel company and saying, you have child labor in your supply chain, and that's a huge problem for you for the bottom line. And a very large number of the other big textile firms say, you know what, you're entirely right. And the fact that there's sexual abuse in the supply chain and we have events like Rana Plaza where people are burned to death, we have to fix this. This is unacceptable brand risk. And so they get together and they try and fix it. They form a. Uh, Groups like the Sustainable Apparel Coalition following Rana Plaza, there were two big new groups set up, and they make some progress, Reese. They have a strong business case. They're really trying to get child labor out of the supply chain, Um, and they make some progress. It turns out to be really hard, but but it's certainly better than nothing. So I, I think what I'm saying, sorry, taking too long to say it, is for many things, there's a business case many more things than you think. Mm. And when you're purpose-driven and you start looking, you can find the business models. Not for everything, not all the time, but there's often a business model. And if you can change the shape of the industry so that doing the right thing is the profitable thing, you can put your competitors under a lot of pressure. I mean, that that's what Musk is doing. I mean, Musk has all kinds of problems. I'm not a cheerleader for him, but he saw <laughs> earlier than everyone else that the industry was going to move to electric vehicles, and if he made that investment, he could accelerate that transition so that people who didn't do it would be left behind. That, that's a classic example. Is he doing out of the goodness of his heart? He is doing it because he wants to save the world. But this is the thing. The business people who do this well, they're continually holding the tension between doing the right thing and making money because that's the only way to survive.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that there's a... And as you say, if you search hard enough, and that's why it's nice to have that purpose in your mind, because then that gives you kind of the leeway or the slack to to explore that search space and to say, okay, is there a possibility here? And also, I really like what you said about, yeah, that's just, yeah, there's a business case behind these things, especially for things that are kind of short term and more clear like that i think this might get into the you're kind of the fifth pillar here and the government and i'm thinking about something like you know have companies done things to you know combat climate change and it's like well maybe that because it doesn't have an immediate impact on their current bottom line they haven't so could you talk about that and how especially the government how you see the government playing a role in um making a healthier competition
1: sure so let let's start with the problem of climate change. so it turns out that there's a business case for most firms there's a business case for cutting your greenhouse gas emissions for Pick a number, about 30 to 40%. So, for example, here at Harvard, we cut the emissions on the campus 30%, and it was NPV positive the whole way. Change out your light bulbs, 15% rate of return. Um, Walmart put in place very aggressive energy reduction goals and was able to bring it down by about that much and make money the whole way. The trouble is, there comes a time at which it's just expensive to stop using fossil fuels. Um, And you, you, you can't do it if your competitors don't do it too. And that's the time at which you say, okay, if climate change continues unchecked, it threatens the viability of our entire enterprise. We must do something about it. And, and this is literally the case. You go to states and, go- and governors and you say, you must regulate carbon. And and there's this wonderful organization called We're Still In, which is more than 2,000 businesses going to state um, and local governments and saying, you have to regulate carbon. Otherwise, our whole society is at risk. We insist you regulate. And you're beginning to see that. I think the early signs of that around inequality, where firms that are trying to respond to the Black Lives Matter movement are saying, okay, we want to hire more people of color. We'll work on promoting them. We'll really... Engage around issues of racism. But as soon as you start thinking about this, you go, wait, wait, the problem is the education and the healthcare system. And firms alone can't fix this. We must bring government into the mix. So I know one private equity investor who uh, persuaded every portfolio firm, every firm in his portfolio, to send a letter to the uh, mayor of every city where they had a location saying, We love being in, say, Atlanta. Um, and we'd love to work with you, but you have to improve the education and the healthcare system here. Or next time we think about relocating a plant, we may not stay. And and you even see firms worrying about the democracy because I know business leaders that are starting to think, okay, this November, the whole democratic process could go sideways. What, what happens to business If our fundamental democratic institutions unravel, is it, is that good? Is that good that we lose the rule of law? Is that good that we say, well, corruption, you know, these things happen. It's not good. And so I I think more and more business businesses are realizing they need government. They need that. That balance in the relationship. I'm tempted to, to go to marriage and say, you know, no partnership is healthy if one partner calls all the shots, has no controls on them, can do anything they want. Any healthy relationship needs mutual respect and, and balance. And I think government and, and markets are, are just like that healthy respect and balance.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think, as you said, There's a back to the business case piece where it's like, okay, is there a business case for having a strong democracy or a you know a a government that responds well to COVID or one that you know really pushes and thinks about diversity and education and healthcare? Yes, and in climate change, of course, like climate change is a massive risk for everybody. I I think uh, that all makes sense to me. How do you see? So is it? Do you just want like what do you see the role of government being then? Is it just? Is it to create? Is it to do anti um, you know monopoly stuff? Off? Is it to put on carbon taxes? Tell me a little bit more about what the government should do.
1: The government should respond to the rule of the people freely expressed.
0: Yeah. Nice, <laughs> so, love it. Love so it. Um, I
1: have faith that when people have the right data and can really exercise their vote and know what's going on, that you'll get the right kind of policies. Mm-hmm. Um, my own vote is for. Um, sensible carbon regulation, a mixture of, of taxes and regulation to make um, dumping fossil fuel pollution into the atmosphere expensive. I mean, that kind of regulation would dramatically accelerate the innovation that will drive us to a carbon-free economy. I'd be a big fan of education and health systems that are um, strong and available to every citizen. Uh, it's the case that in this country, I could drive 100 miles west and life expectancy is roughly equal to that of Botswana. The the healthcare system is so much worse and uh, I'd be in favor of a minimum wage and uh, sensible labor regulations such that people have sick leave and um, when people lose their jobs, there's ready retraining. I mean, but I'm just reeling you off a list of policies that I happen mm-hmm. to like. Um, and antitrust would be in there. I, I don't know. You know, there are lots of smart people thinking about policy, but I really mean it. I think the policy should be what people... Want. But that means, and we haven't talked about rebuilding civil society, three legs to the, the strong stool that is a healthy society. And there's tons of, of research and data on this. Societies that grow and thrive. Free markets, free politics, and strong civil society. What does that mean? Strong civil society, some kind of representation for employees. I hesitate to use the word unions, but sometimes unions. Um, uh, impartial rule of law, so an independent judiciary, and a free media and a clear sense of what is true. So I'm sure you've talked about this on other episodes, Reese, but the fact that we've lost a common sense of what is true is a huge problem. So part of fixing democracy is building a clear, shared sense of what is true and how we think about the nature of truth. And yeah, now by now I've sort of fixed the whole of society, but uh, but to go back <laughs> to the bottom line, I think there's lots of evidence that business is much better off in the midst of a threat democracy. I think that democracy right now, if it was more healthy, would impose carbon regulation and higher taxes and invest more in education and healthcare. But I think that that would be in the long-term interest of the private sector.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I love what you said there, which is A, you're just one person of many and that really the government should listen to the people and that I also super love what you said there that, you know, this three-legged stool of government, corporations, and civil society and within civil society, obviously the, you know, the employee or the, you know, the the ability for employees to talk about stuff, whether it's unions or something else, the strong independent judiciary, and then this media and truth piece is, I think crucial as well, of course, and yes we are in a, (laughs) the fake news post-truth difficult network since making environment, um, and and that makes things definitely more difficult. It makes me actually want to ask you a little bit about. I know that a bit of your, and I, d- I don't know that deeply about this background. I looked it up a bit. I know that you've been working with, like, you have this term like architectural innovation, and then in the book you have this beautiful line of that's very kind of systems thinking adjacent to me, which says like, hey, you say um, that. You know, architectural knowledge, knowledge of how the components fit together, how it becomes embedded in the structure, in the incentives, in the information processing capability of the organization, organization, where it becomes effectively invisible, making it very difficult to change. What you're saying there is like how there's this knowledge that kind of gets kind of sucked up and embedded into these institutional structures and into the incentives. And then how do we change that? And that's kind of what your whole book is about is kind of shifting that. And this, I would just, I'm just curious on your thoughts on like systems change more generally or kind of the mindset or the lens that you bring to these kinds of things.
1: Whoa, you're entirely (laughs) right, Reese. I mean, the whole book is a systems change book It's a theory of how business might be an actor in changing our entire system. And the problem is architectural. Those of us who are fortunate to have good, privileged lives, we've been able to just focus on our little piece of the puzzle, whether it's just making money or just teaching courses or, you know, whatever our little piece is. And we're at a moment where as a society, we need to put our heads up out of our silos And really think about what we want as a whole society. I spent 20 years studying how hard that is to do in firms. It's why I got so interested in purpose. As I worked with firms that were struggling to change, and I was the Eastman Kodak. I saw Eastman Kodak professor. I saw Kodak go down. I spent a year of my life working with Nokia trying to persuade them that Apple was a real threat. I know how hard this change is. What I saw again and again is that firms who were committed to making a difference in the world, who had a higher purpose, that were committed to serving customers or to creating great jobs, were much better at navigating this kind of systemic change. Because when you're really committed to something larger than yourself, it it, it gives you at least two things. One is it gives you broader vision. it's less threatening to look across the whole society and really think about how change needs to happen. And the other, when we're lucky, and none of us is lucky all the time, it gives you a place to stand, which is not about your own ego, which is about how you're part of a broader whole, your family, your community, your nation, your world. And my gamble is that this combination of the fact that, oh my goodness, there's a business case for managing the architectural shift. I mean, if we don't solve the problems we face, I think we're going to end up in either right or left populism in a world that is consistently on fire. It will be a disaster. I mean... You know, it's said that the pandemic is a pop quiz and we are failing and climate change is the exam. You know, yeah. you need to have both business and government focused on the common good and telling the truth and working together in partnership to address these kinds of issues or terrible things are going to happen. So we yeah. have a business case. We have a strong purpose. And I, I wrote the book to try and help the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are trying to drive change. I mean, one of the amazing things about writing this book has been the chance to talk to people who are working in the front line. And Rhys, there are thousands of people committing their lives to, yeah, making money, making a difference. I got that one. Here, watch me. I mean, and there are people in NGOs and in government. There's so much activity. Humans are super smart. I think we'll work this out. So, what's my theory of change? Business is an incredibly powerful actor with a strong interest in fixing this problem. It's very well regarded. Most people trust the firms they work for. It's a way to generate common facts. I think business, if it stepped up, could be an, a hugely important ally in driving the broader change. But of course, we also need a massive political and social movement to, to rebalance our society.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that the theory of change of these companies with a purpose where you actually have the business change behind it, that that is yeah, one crucial piece of this this movement that will happen for all of us. So uh fingers crossed, we'll make it there. And and shout out to all the people on the front lines doing it. Um and I guess one as we wrap up here, A, uh check please check out Rebecca's book. It's called Reimagining Capitalism. And I think the colon is like, or the subtitles A World on Fire. Is that correct?
1: <laughs> it's reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. People ask me how I knew, I said it wasn't that hard. <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah, we're in route. It's going to be scary. Um, and I do think, for me personally, the thing that I really loved about the book was how much it had these cool case studies and these co- and bits of data around ES. I was I came into the book skeptical of ESGs. I came into the book skeptical of some of these um, of like self regulatory organizations and stuff like that. So you get a lot of cool case studies and numbers around these. So that's what I recommend. And Rebecca, do you have any other recommendations for our listeners or places to find you on the internet?
1: um so i'm recap rebecca if you want to follow me on on twitter but it's really about the book um i hope that you know if you're listening you'll pick up a copy i wrote it as a gateway to an amazing amount of incredible research and fabulous firms um lots of stories lots of data how we really could drive change that that's what the book's about
0: beautiful uh well with that thank you again so much for coming on today rebecca
1: Thank you very much, Reese. It's been a pleasure.
0: Cool. Goodbye, everybody. At the end of a show, I do these personal reflections on what I thought of the interview. And so this is a five to ten minute take on my take. <laughs> so, yeah, I am just want to highlight some things that stood out for me here and that I'm thinking about. First, I want to say that this show is very much in the, if you think from a root system perspective and ethics, epistemology, and uh, ontology, this is very much from the ethics frame this shift from now me to future us and how that shift is embodied within companies so the shift towards stakeholder capitalism etc and it's mostly about that the ethics frame but it's also a little bit about the epistemology and coherent pluralism frame because that's all about you know how signals map onto reality and the difference between those two the difference that often comes up and so that happens a lot when we talk about uh, metric based signaling. And are you actually doing good? Or are you just saying you're doing good? So that's how I kind of frame this conversation in my mind. And I want to highlight eh, a couple big things. The first is, yeah, I think Rebecca does a good job of highlighting that, you know, in the end, we're just trying to meet human needs. And you know, what she calls shared value, or what you know, from a bentoist perspective, you would say, ah, you're meeting a now me need or some kind of uh, you know, future us or future me or now us need, and then you're getting paid for meeting that need. So I think that that is just a helpful reminder that companies, in the end, are trying to meet human needs. And of course, they can sometimes go off the rails and start to do kind of simulcra style things where they are just instead of actually meeting our needs, they are meeting signals for our needs or they are meeting a need that does not exist that they kind of create themselves. But Often, yeah, companies, they're just trying to meet human needs. And so, if we shift our understanding of companies, if companies shift to continue to meet human needs, and as we go further in society and we try to meet more future us based needs, yeah, then companies should be able to meet those needs. So, this is just the idea that, like, yeah, doing the right thing can be profitable. And there are a lot of business models that make sense with that. You know, I just, you know, a couple quick examples here. As Rebecca noted in the interview, Harvard, you know, gets a 30 or 40% return for doing a lot of their environmental work that they initially did of just like, yeah, use LEDs. It'll just be cheaper. Um, Walmart increased their energy efficiency by 13% uh, and saved $250 million per year doing it. JetBlue, I like this example. This is from These are all from Rebecca's book. They said water tanks, their water tanks were always full. And uh, whenever they got to the end, they just people weren't using water, but they were required to have them be you know full full and they changed just a rule at JetBlue say, so you know what they only need to be uh, a three quarters full. And that saved them a bunch of money. I have written here a trillion dollars, which is almost certainly wrong, maybe closer to a billion or a million dollars, um, and 2,700 tons of CO2 per flight, maybe per year, I think probably per year. So that's just another cool example. There's also, this is very connected to, okay, if you're trying to, doing the right thing is profitable, this gets into this idea of the universal investor, which... Rebecca mentions in the interview, but doesn't go deep into, and I thought it was a cool perspective, there are these investors that own so much money that they are, they have to own lots of everything. So these are the Black Rocks and Fidelities and people like that. And her example in the book is this, uh, the the Tokyo, or sorry, the Japan Pension Fund. They own 1% of all equities in the world. And so they're a universal investor. And so what, when you own own 1% of all the equities in the world, you just... You don't care about picking winners as much as you don't want everything to lose. And so this is when something like climate change or inequity or civil unrest or bad democracy, those things all make everything go down. And so that is not what you want as a universal investor. And I think that that is, you know, just that key alignment of so many <laughs> businesses in a simple way to put this is just businesses. If there's no humanity, there's no profitable there's no profit to be had and so that's obviously an extreme example but the small examples of it are true as well which is oh boy if you have a climate change if you have intense climate change or an unequal and undereducated workforce those things are just bad for business you know they make things more risky you have less you know good folks to to you know to choose from to be employees etc so i think it is yeah and and rebecca talks about the examples of companies petitioning for more education or more things from government that or or climate change you know solutions that will actually just help them because it's good for their bottom line so i think that that frame is very helpful just hey it is possible for companies to meet human needs if you provide me with food yes that's amazing i'm going to pay you for that and we can start to do it in this you know future way which is oh if you meet a need of providing a more sustainable civilization great you should be paid for that as well And the issue often comes up with just signaling, right, that you have this underlying reality that gets mistaken for the signal, a.k.a. if you are, if you have the underlying reality of, okay, you're trying to make things that are good for the environment, and then your signal on top is some kind of greenwashing thing where you're like, oh, this is totally good. But is it actually good for the environment? How do we know? How do we couple those sig- those symbols or those signals of that to the actual reality? And I think that Rebecca has a good point here of just, hey, you have to have these very, very strong metrics. And that's why she's you know bullish on accountants, essentially, and accounting. And I also think that, I don't know, I wish that there was a... <sighs> I was just, there was a term for this. We have terms like greenwashing or virtue signaling, but is there a term for when the thing you're optimizing for is accurately, uh, you know, is the thing you're you're optimizing for, the reality that you're trying to optimize for, is captured by the signals? I know that there's stuff like um, Goodhart's law, which says that a metric ceases to become a good metric over time. And I know that there are things like greenwashing and virtue signaling, which are similar. And I know that there's stuff like effective altruism, which is all about trying to make sure that the impact is still actually happening. But I just wish there was a term for, like, tightly coupled symbols to reality. Yeah. The other thing, you know, so signaling is an issue with, you know, meeting human needs. And the other thing that can be an issue is just, yeah, these metrics getting started up. But the thing that, again, I like to remind folks of is, And I think there are a lot of folks that are skeptical of ESG metrics, but a reminder that ESG metrics started really recently, even divestment as a thing only started in 1970 with apartheid. And that's when you got some of these people that, uh, what's it called when you exclusionary funds where you don't invest in tobacco or you don't invest in oil or what have you. And yeah, so it's just recent. That's the main claim here: is that divestment started in 1970. The triple bottom line was only coined in 1998. That means uh, three Ps: profit, but in addition to profit, people, and the planet. Um, this beautiful thing called the SASB. I think it's like the sustainable or the sustain SASB sustainability. Let me actually Google it. Uh, it is sustainability accounting standards board. That thing is the main ESG metrics organization and they were started in 2011 and their first standards just came out in 2018 and they, these standards are very directly connected to actual profit. So it's a, you essentially, it's essentially a, a correlation thing where you look at a company, you say, what else is this company doing that can be correlated to profits and how can we optimize for those as well? Ah, they're good with their employees. Great. That's actually correlated with, have, you know, making more money. So let's put that in these ESG metrics. So this is say it's all new. Um, and we still also have, you know, 20% of all money right now is invested in exclusionary funds and another 20% is invested in ESG. So it's new and we have almost 40% of all money is invested in a socially conscious way. And I think that we're just going to get better and better metrics around how to be socially conscious. So short-term bearish on ESGs, but long-term bullish on metrics here. Yeah, the other thing I want to chat about here is, you know, Rebecca talks a lot about purpose. And how purpose is helpful for making you, uh, it's a way to check that you're actually connected to needs. You know, if you're just only trying to optimize for ROI... And for profit, that can turn into these bad cycles where you're, where you just addict people on the internet, and then think that you're providing them value, but you're actually just, you know, making them spend time on the internet or whatever. <laughs> and so, purpose allows you to say to come back to your, to your purpose, which is almost always connected to human needs. I think that's really powerful. The other thing that I think in the future that could be very powerful here is purpose. You know, having a mission as a company allows you to look at the other companies around you and find shared purpose. So if I am Nike and you are Adidas, we both want to help people look good and be healthy while wearing athletic clothing or whatever. (laughs) And so in theory, we should be competing over that, and we do. But I think in the future, what we'll see is purposes becoming shared in this really powerful way where people are aligning around shared purpose and that you then co-evolve instead of competing around that. So this is to say in the short term purpose is crucial because it is connected. It allows people to connect. It allows companies to connect back to their own needs, back to human needs instead of getting in these ROI, you know, symbol, you know, signals on signals, um, Goodhart's law loops And Purpose will be great in the future because it will allow people to connect over shared outcomes as well. The final thing I want to say here is, yeah, I think that if you think about Rebecca's book, she talks about five crucial components of reimagining capitalism. The first one is shared value, which is, you know, in my opinion, thinking of it from the bento frame is very helpful. Where you say, okay, okay, sweet, we are a company that's trying to provide value for folks. It it needs to be valuable for the company, you know, the now me of the company's profit, but also needs to be valuable for the individuals you're providing it for. It actually should be meeting their needs instead of meeting some signal of their needs. The second piece that Rebecca has here is purpose, which is a mechanism for making that shared value. As I just talked about, purpose is a way. You you can check in with purpose as you're doing ROI loops to make sure that you're actually connecting back to human needs. The three, her final three pieces here are just Lessig's dot, which is really nice. So Lawrence Lessig's pathetic dot is a way to understand how, you know, the forces that shape us in society. And the, you know, for her, so in Lessig's dot, her first, and, and with Rebecca, her first uh, piece here of these final three is SR, you know, the self regulatory piece saying, hey, if you're a company, if you're Nike or Ideas, you want to be part of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. That is norm setting, right? I mean, it's definitely finance setting as well because it's connected back to brand value and making sure that everybody is actually making money. But it's also connected to norms you're trying to set norms you're using the norm as an incentive you know praise or shame for the people around you to you know to be good so sros are norms you know self regulatory organizations that's norm-based her fourth piece you know is finance and so you know rewiring finance and that's obviously all about incentives so if you can give people a monetary incentive, a new kind of monetary incentive, that says, ah, you have these new ESG metrics that are connected to ROI, or are you know people do look at you and are actively investing money in these kinds of companies, then you are incentivized based off of making or losing money. So rewiring finance, or fourth piece, is another uh, is the finance part of Lessig's dot, and then finally the government or laws part of Lessig's dot is connected to Rebecca's uh fifth thing here which is hey we need a strong government you know we need a government you know and this is just a classic balancing feedback loop situation where you can't have you know rebecca talks about a civil strong civil society a, you know a, a, you know a nice government and then corporations as a three-legged stool yeah you have to have that feedback loop and if you have companies that are just too powerful and if the government isn't able to protect our public goods and if the civil society isn't able to protect what is true, then you get climate change and fake news and things like that. So yeah, I think that the government being able to set things like whether it is, you know, regu- various regulations or something like a carbon tax is a way to incentivize people with laws as well. So this is to say Rebecca's three uh, pieces at the end as the way to you know manifest shared value, her three mechanisms here are norms, uh, money, and laws, which I think just maps pretty well into Lessig's dot, and it also makes you think of ah, what about this fourth piece here, which is code? You know, that's the fourth part of Lessig's dot, and yes, I think that there's uh, lots of interesting space to explore here. How can we manifest an ethical a new ethical frame, a.k.a. a future us-oriented frame, in code? That is an open question, and there are lots of proto-examples of it, like, you know, if you buy a plane ticket, then carbon uh, tax yourself. You know, you know, s- send money to a, to a carbon thing to close the loop of those externalities. That kind of stuff uh, we're starting to see more of, and I'm excited to see where it goes. Cool. Well, hope this... A thing at the end was fun for you to listen to and helpful to understand how i'm thinking about it and goodbye thanks